This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, good morning, friends. How are you this morning? Did you sleep good and hard and long? Did anyone get a long night's sleep? Oh, no. I didn't either. Um, we're glad to be with you this morning, though. Grace, God's grace is sufficient, and GYC is a packed time. So, yeah, by definition, it's kind of hard to get a long night's sleep. And you, you, you swapped microphones with me again. Uh, we'll dive right in. We're gonna, we'll try to address a couple more of the questions that came in yesterday. Um, then we'll dive into what we have for you this morning and, and hopefully finish up the rest of the questions at the end. Uh, but let's, let's start first with a word of prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to come uh, again, to, to sit at your table, to seek you, um, and to, uh, to, to receive of you the bread of life. Uh, we come, and it's, it's morning, it's Friday, there are exciting things uh, planned for today, to be packed into today, and we just want to start the, our morning on this note, um, and come together one last time to discuss how it is uh, that we can meet you in the mornings um, as not just a, you know, an event, a, a moment, a blip in our day, but actually as a kind of a heartbeat, a lifestyle um, that helps to preserve spiritual life. So bless us in our uh, last discussion this morning. May your spirit be felt here in a, in a powerful way in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a couple of the, a couple of the easier questions that came in uh, yesterday. Um, one was, will this lecture series be available on Audioverse after GYC? Anywhere else we can listen to it again? Definitely, yes. It'll be on Audioverse slash GYC recordings, but definitely on Audioverse. There's usually a couple-week delay, but... It will be there. Uh, another question. What about family worship on Sabbath morning? Um, again, we're, I'll, I'll take you the step back. We're talking about creating an environment in which God can be seen and known to be who he is, which is beautiful and loving and lovely. Um, so, you know, especially if you have, uh, you know, little ones that you are helping to, uh, to paint the picture of God for. And you know that going to church is going to mean a bit of frenzy in the morning and then Sabbath school and church, by the end of which they'll be ready to be berserk. And then in the afternoon, you know, you have some other, you know, outreach activity or, or whatever. Just bear in mind your, your perspective, the scope of the whole day. Obviously, you can never have too much worship time as a family. Uh, but the flip side of that would be if you have little ones that are already Sabbath is just a lot of uh, worship time, uh, then you'd want to be sensitive in how you formatted that worship on Sabbath morning so that you're not just adding length to, a, to what they perceive as a very long day already. Does that make sense? Um, again, it's not a highly technical answer, but it's an answer based on what are we trying to accomplish with devotional time, with family worship time. We're trying to accomplish... <laughs> coming face-to-face with God within a setting that, that allows him to be revealed to us as, you know, exactly what he is. So for us, we have a family worship 
uh, on Sabbath mornings, but it's often a little bit more brief than a family worship on the rest of the days. Uh, it might be the Ellen White devotional, you know, around the breakfast table or something along those lines. Uh, is it is it not on? Is it muted? Is it completely powered down? Mute, unmute. Yeah, I, I see that it's. Well, all the knobs and dials are up, but I don't know where the. Uh, I don't know where the. I don't see the base. Oh, it might be the receiver on the. It's on the, it's on the front of the rack here. I just saw. Okay, what I was going to say about that was um, often while we were growing up, often we didn't have family worship on Sabbath mornings um, just because of how the day went out. Now, again, this is, this, this is not a law of the Medes and the Persians. Sometimes if, we, if maybe if we had people over or if their, our morning was a little bit less pressured on Sabbath mornings because we had quite a drive to church, You're breaking the microphones. I think so. Okay, there we go. Am I working? Oh, okay. Wonderful. Hello? Okay, Do I still so, work? <laughs> so it wasn't, so it wasn't the law of the Medes and Persians, right? It was, it was flexible. It was structured. You can be creative about it. If you want to have some time maybe on the way to church and you have a long enough drive, maybe you can do something then. But again, I think as, as Sean said, create the atmosphere in which love for Christ can grow. That's, that's the purpose, you know, worshiping to God, God together. Obviously, we always had our own personal devotions on Sabbath morning, but um, as far as family worship was concerned, um, another consideration would maybe be um, how quality of an experience are the children having at church? How meaningful is their Sabbath school time? Those would be other considerations to bear in mind. All right. Then there was another question uh, regarding, uh, you mentioned yesterday, you're in Paul's work with, with Mark Finley. What kind of program are you doing? Okay, so Paul and I work for them. So we live in Virginia and work at their evangelism school. Um, but as far as uh, what programs are available, they do do programs for, um, many of their programs are for pastors, but they also do programs for lay people and for young people. And there's a lot of information available for that. So if you want to learn more information on the Finley's Evangelism Training School, which is not um, like typical evangelism training schools and that most of them are longer, like four-month programs or three-month programs or six-month programs. The Finleys are much shorter because they are structured at people who are living very busy lives already, like pastors or young people who are in school or something like that. So theirs are very short. They're intensives that last maybe five days, some of them seven days, um, and you can come back for as many of those as you want. If you want more information about that, you can go to Living, you can search Living Hope Evangelism School. Come talk to us afterwards. That's probably the most straightforward way. Also, if in the future you have questions, you can search for Living Hope Evangelism School um, on, on Google. Right. So our topic for this morning, last topic uh, together, is by every word. What is, uh, we've talked about, you know, the overarching purpose, why it is that we have devotions, why it's a, you know, why it's a good idea, not just because of what we were created for and, and what devotions, you know, a lifestyle of devotion does for us. Um, 
but, uh, but also on a you know, practical, tangible level. We've talked about how to do that, what to study, uh, what are the, some of the things that you have to watch out for, whatever, stepping back and getting a, a wider perspective. But ultimately, there is one uh, overarching element that makes Scripture meaningful and significant to us, especially as Christians. Mm-hmm. And without this ingredient, Bible study really fails to make a lot of sense. Um, and not only does it fail to make a lot of sense, it, it, uh, it really has no, um, oh, I'm missing a word again. What's the word I'm looking for? It has no, yeah, substance. No context? Is, uh, thank you. That's exactly the word. It, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's completely, it's, it's meaningless. Uh, it's as meaningless as it would be for a, for a complete unbeliever to pick up the word. And they're just like, okay, well, you know, it's another book. It's, it's more fine paper with a bunch of black words. You know, they don't understand, well, what is this piece of the puzzle that they're missing? Hmm. That piece of the puzzle is faith. Yeah. The Bible is significant to us and the word of God is power to us because we have this thing called faith. And so a discussion of Bible study would be... Uh, we would be remiss if we concluded a discussion on Bible study and the purposes of Bible study without putting our finger on this button. What do I mean by that? First of all, maybe what is faith? There are many definitions for faith. Um, I myself have used a number of analogies over the years. I want to draw your attention to Jesus' own definition this morning. Mm. Once upon a time, Jesus was doing what Jesus did best, Uh, going from town to town, city to city, preaching and healing. The story is recorded in Matthew chapter 8 that uh, a centurion at at one point comes up to him. Centurion comes up to him and says, "Uh, my servant is, is sick. He lieth home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And Centurion says, no, 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 no. That's not what I was actually asking for. You don't have to come to my house. Don't come to my house. All you need to do is speak the word. Jesus turned to the Centurion and, as it were, looked at him and then looked at his disciples and said, in essence, did you hear what he just said? Did you catch what he just said? Hmm. A centurion or a a servant of the Roman government, did you catch what he just said? And then he told them, I've never seen faith like this. Not even in Israel. For Jesus, the, 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 okay, and of course, then he turns to the centurion and says, go your way. Your faith has made your servant whole. For Jesus, the essence of faith was the posture of this man coming to Jesus, making a request, and Jesus says, I will respond immediately. Yeah, I'll come and heal him. You don't need to come and heal him. That's unnecessary. All you need to do is speak the word. The centurion had this confidence, and this confidence was, was, uh, incidentally, as far as we know, not based on experience. Hmm. The centurion, there's no evidence that suggests that the week before, Jesus healed the, other, the centurion's other servant in this manner. There also is not evidence that Jesus made a regular habit of healing centurion's servants telepathically. So the centurion just 
seemingly out of nowhere, comes up with this confidence that all Jesus needs to do is speak the word and his servant will be healed. Your word is enough for me. That's mm -hmm. the posture of the centurion. This is the posture that makes scripture meaningful. This is the posture that makes scripture significant. And incidentally, it's the posture that makes scripture powerful mm -hmm. in the life Amen. of a Christian. If we come to Jesus with a heart full of doubt, then Jesus will open his arms and take us in, right, with our, with our heart full of doubt. Like, he's ready to receive. But his power to do will be severely limited in our experience. If you can believe, Jesus said. What's the, wait, what's the rate limiting, what is the limiting factor in this equation? It's, it's me. It's me and my belief. He said, if you can believe all things are, all things are possible. If you can believe all things are possible, the power that is in the word of God is not only, is, is creative and specific, but it's also reaches far beyond our power to even imagine. And the rate limiting step is if you can believe. So when we, when we approach the word of God, we stand to gain the most if we approach it with this posture of, I already recognize, kind of like Natasha was saying yesterday, I already recognize I'm down here. Scripture is up here. The power of God is eternal. And I simply believe. Mm. One more note on belief. So we have this infinite power. And, uh, you know, everybody knows that the power of God is infinite, right? Okay. And then we have our experience. And there's sometimes a disconnect between the infinite power that we all say we know is available and the reality of my daily experience. And why, you know, why that, I mean, if, if the power is really infinite, it's like, it's not like the angels switch sides every 30 minutes and evil becomes omnipotent. And no, God is on the throne. God is always on the throne. So you know, we have this disconnect and, and, and where's, again, where's the rate limiting step? The rate limiting step is here. But the simplicity of getting the power of God to be, you know, practical and tangible in my life is actually not that complicated. Um, if you're walking to any mainstream evangelical church these days and say, I want to give my heart to, you know, to Jesus, I want to be a Christian, uh, they would lead you through probably a very simple little prayer and, and kaboom, now you're saved. And uh, sometimes in, in our perspective, we think, oh, I can't, you know, there is, there's more to it than that. Obviously, there's got to be more to it than that. You remember time recorded in the book of Acts when, when Paul was thrown into prison uh, for healing this woman who had been once upon a time a, a soothsayer. He's thrown into prison and, uh, you know, the house comes down at midnight. He's singing. Uh, he and uh, Silas... Paul and Silas, Paul and Barb. Mm -hmm. I can never remember. Silas. Paul, Silas. Okay. He and Silas are in there singing, and um, there's an earthquake. The doors all fly open. The chains fall off their wrists. The jailer comes in. He's about to kill himself. Don't do it. We're all here. And the jailer's like, why are you all here? Comes in, falls down before Paul and, si and Silas, we're told. And he, he, uh, he asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response to him was, do you remember? Believe, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What does it mean to believe? 
What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe the word of infinite God? That's a choice I make in my head. It is simply to count something as true. Belief is like faith. But faith is belief plus experience. So, for example, if I ask you a favor, you're a perfect stranger on the street. I ask you a favor, and you say, yeah, I'll do that. I believe you will because, uh, you know, I don't know what my favor was, but anyway. I believe you will. I count your word as true. I have no experience with you, no exposure to you, but you look like a nice enough person, and you don't look like a person who's, you know, out to just destroy me for fun. So I ask you a favor, and you say, you know, would you grab this for me or throw this in the trash for me or whatever, and you say, you will. And so I count it as done. You said you would. That's belief. It's a choice I make in my mind, and it really is not more complicated than that. Now, faith is that plus experience. So if, I'm your, if you're my friend, and I've asked you a favor 100 days in a row, and every, you know, every time over 100 days you've fulfilled, now when someone uh, suggests to me, hey, they probably won't do that for you. Yes, they will. Yeah, 100 days in a row they've done it. Now it's just it's a choice I make in my brain plus a confidence I have born of experience. Does that make sense? So we got belief and faith, but incidentally and, and encouragingly, when Paul came, when Paul spoke to the jailer, he did not say, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that shall be saved. Why? The jailer had no exposure to Jesus Christ, no relationship with Jesus Christ, no history with Jesus Christ. What was Paul asking the jailer to do? Make a choice with his brain, a choice that says Jesus is true. He really died. He came for me. He really rose. And he's gone again. Is it really? Can it be that simple? Mm -hmm. It can be that simple. And I'll tell you why. If we were to take that almost simple-minded, this is why, incidentally, this is why faith is referred to as childlike. If we would take that simple, absolute, okay, fine, well, he said it, therefore it must be true, approach to Scripture... Scripture suddenly comes alive. Hmm. The power of God is suddenly unleashed. Now, I'll warn you. The reason why I make this point this morning is that this is not popular. We live in an enlightened generation. A generation where we glorify doubt. We glorify critical, you know, thinking and critical argument and critical exegesis. And that always means that you have to be smarter than the last guy who gave the simple explanation and add another caveat or dig deeper into the Greek to make it a little bit more complicated. That's what we consider to be, thank you, that's what we consider to be, you know, intellectually robust. Let me just tell you, the gospel is not written to be complicated in that way. Mm. The gospel, the Bible was not, yeah, the Bible is fount for all kinds of intellectually robust exploration and discussion. Hallelujah. But faith is not meant to work that way. The faith that makes the Bible become power in our lives, the faith that ultimately gets us into the kingdom of heaven, friends, simple. Simple, radical, and incidentally, defining mark of what it means to be Christian. Do you remember which town it was where Christians got their name, Christian? Disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, the, the book of uh, Acts. Acts says. 
Do anything about Antioch? Antioch was a hustling, bustling, flourishing city, city of trade. It was a rich place. It was America. And in that place, I can only imagine this guy walking down the streets one day in his, you know, rough burlap-like tent remnant garments. And he has this story. And the story is that there was this guy. And this guy came down. This guy was God, but he was born as a man, as a baby, in a manger. But then he grew up. And he started, he lived and he loved and he served and he worked all these miracles. He raised people from the dead, you guys. But then he died. But then he rose again. And then he suddenly got sucked up to heaven in the clouds. And if Antioch was anything like America, oh, yeah, good story. Yeah, clouds. Wait, go. Who got a man? A God. A God man. Oh, we have God men. Yeah, yeah, but died. Well, you can't kill a god. Okay. It just didn't make sense, okay? This is just, it's a, ta- it's a far-fetched, far-flung tale, stuff of weak minds, you know? And the learned, and probably the teenagers too, were alike, laughing at the idea. But there were a few that believed it. There were a few that there was like, that guy, did you hear it? Did you hear him? He walked through town telling about this guy who was a god, who came, lived the perfect life. He was killed, and then, lo and behold, the third day, he rose up, and then now he's sitting, now he, he, he literally lives at this palace in the clouds, and he wants to take me up there, too. They believed it. And you know what they called him? They called him Christians. Some people were brave enough to say, that kind of crazy, yeah, that's me, sign me up. I am that kind of crazy. Now, these days, of course, Christianity is much more mainstream. But it's also true that radical faith is just as crazy now as it was back then, if not more crazy. Because now everyone thinks, yeah, I'm a Christian too, and I believe in the the God in the clouds too. But along with that belief in the God in the clouds is just, I don't know, a complicated approach to Scripture and life in general that's, that's, that's relative and, and complicated and, and has all this fine print that gives plenty of excuses for, you know, whatever I want to, to do with my life that doesn't exactly fit within the pages of the Bible. Enough, my friends, enough. Let's approach the Bible with a simple perspective. It just says it. So I believe it, and I'm going to do it. That's enough for me. So having that kind of faith is life-changing, but it is not easy. It does not come naturally to us to say, okay, you know, I read this, you know, Christ 2,000 years ago, he was on earth, but this is a living letter to me, so it's just as relevant today. So I read this, and it says, you know, whatsoever you shall ask in faith, believing that you shall receive. And so, therefore, I believe. Even though my feelings are saying something different, I believe. That is the right kind of faith, but it is not an easy kind of faith. And to have a faith so strong that we can stake our life on that when prophecy is being fulfilled and we're coming to the end of this world, and I tell you what, this world cannot last that much longer. Uh. Especially when you live 45 minutes from Washington, D.C. like I do. That becomes very clear. This world's not going to last much longer. So we need to have a faith that is rooted and grounded on this word so strong that we cannot be moved. So... But, however, for human nature, like we were saying in the very first session, we are naturally inclined towards unbelief. So how can we develop that faith? We have three simple steps for you this morning. I'm going to read them quickly, and then we'll talk about each one. First one, spend more time beholding the word than this world. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Two, continually state the realities of heaven to your own soul. And three, put God to test. So let's talk about each of these. First one, spend more time beholding the word 
than the world. What does this practically mean? We are bombarded by the messages of society, of you know, our peers, of you know, what is cool and what is not in this generation, of you know, the way we're supposed to be. We're bombarded by those messages constantly. When we're driving down the road, you see the billboards. I mean, it is unavoidable to live in this world and not be confronted and bombarded by it. So we have to hypersaturate ourselves with another world. That means very practically sometimes when I'm up and say making breakfast for Paul and I before we go out into the day, that means I turn on, I love Bible stories, especially Old Testament stories. I love the Old Testament. I, mean, I love the whole Bible, but I grew up when I was like seven, six, seven, eight. I spent all my time reading, you know, First Kings, Second Kings, First Samuel. I, I loved those books. So maybe I'll turn one of those on and just listen to Bible stories. They're very interesting. You can go to uh, Faith Cometh by Hearing and download one of their audio Bibles for free and listen to it. Listen to the Word of God. Or what's that one that you listen to in Psalms that's really, really beautiful? Um, that audio Bible. Who remember yeah. it? Uh, the no, Word of Promise. The Word of, the word promise. of promise. Beautiful if you want to hear the Psalms in a way that just uplifts your mind to heaven. Saturate yourself with this. If you are, you know, at night, instead of being on your device, by the way, the light that's coming from the device isn't good for our circadian rhythm, so it's actually damaging our health and our brain health if we're you know, on our devices at night and looking at this and looking at that before we go to sleep. So instead of doing that, set it down, and before you go to bed, read the protest of the princes from GC. Talk about getting your blood pumping for Just for in time heaven. for bed. Well, but it's good, it's good <laughs> nighttime reading. <laughs> it's good nighttime reading. Hallelujah! Now let's go to bed. <laughs> All right. Protest of the Princes. That's one of my very favorite chapters. A great controversy. If you no, haven't read Protest that's of the that's Princes, high drama. That's good. go read it. That chapter is awesome. Among Snares from Desire of Ages. Read it before you go to bed. You know, if you read, you know, pray, through a, uh, pray, pray through a passage in the Psalms. Something, anything to have your mind continually faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Repetition. As much as the culture is bombarding us, we also need to be bombarded by the word of God. It's very practical, but instead of you know, filling our minds with more of the culture at night, in the morning, at midday when we have a moment, let's fill our minds with the word of God. Simple thing, but it makes a difference in your life. And it turns our excitement from being you know, all excited and stimulated by the things of this world to being excited and stimulated by the things of heaven. And that changes our lives. Okay, so that's the first one. Uh, faith, you know, spend more time in the word than in the world. And then the second one, and this is one that I have to say is one of my weak spots. It is powerful when I do it, but I often forget. So I need to write myself notes or something to remind myself. Continually state the realities of heaven to your soul. I'll tell you what I mean by that. That means that in this generation of too much noise and of too many messages coming into our minds by the world, by our own flesh, and by the devil, he is trying, the devil's full-time job is to try to get us to believe mistruths about God. So what we need to be doing is counteracting that by stating truth to our own mind. Let me, let me give you a pra very practical example. When I wake up in the morning, I do not do this every morning, and I need to be doing it every morning, so this was convicting to me again this morning when I was thinking about it. When you wake up in the morning, first thing you do before you even open your Bible, state some of the truths of heaven to your own soul. Say, okay, I am now about to go into the throne room of God. 
through prayer and study of the Word of God. That's what we're doing. I'm about to go into the throne room of the God of the universe, and I am his treasure. Sin will not have dominion over me because I am under grace. Sin may abound in my life, but grace much more abounds in my life. I am in Christ, and if I am in Christ, that means that I can be emancipated from this world, okay? State the realities of heaven to your soul very plainly, very clearly. Now, incidentally, about going into the throne room of God. Pause a minute to to wrap your minds around the reality that the monarch of the universe, the one who's in control of everything, one by, by whose word and by power all things exist, that one we have access to at any time. That is not normal, okay? If we have a king or a president or someone who's very powerful, you do not have instant access at any time. Not even, you know, the president's wife can just interrupt at any time, you know, while he's in the middle of the the G20 meetings to just be like, oh, something happened today, and I'm sorry, and I'm sad about it. I want your comfort. Maybe if there's a big terrorist attack at home, you can interrupt him when he's in the middle of the G20 meetings, but not otherwise, because he's, going, he's involved in something that's too important at this time for me to just come in at any time, interrupt and say, hey, I need love, I need comfort, I need, your, you know, I need your encouragement right now. You can't do that on this earth. And incidentally, I think that... Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you some doctrinal truth, okay? But I don't think it's even necessarily that in heaven you can just go barging into to the throne room at any time because it says in Great Controversy that the angels that are are commissioned to minister unto us are the ones that have access at any time to his presence, which tells me that others can't just go in any time they want. No, that's what the covering cherub is for, formerly Lucifer, now Gabriel. There's actually, hey, there's a sense of decorum. This is the king of the universe. You can't just go in there just any time you feel like it and be like, hey, I want to do this. But we can. We can. That is an incredible reality. So it is foolishness of us Foolishness of Natasha when I'm just kind of indifferent about talking to him and indifferent about prayer. It's like I got other things to do right now. That God, while he's in the middle of the meeting with the sons of God that have assembled from all the known places in the universe, will take time to listen to me on earth saying, such and such happened. My dog died. I'm sorry about this. Someone said something that was hurtful. Can you give me some love and encouragement right now? And in the middle of the quote-unquote G20 meetings of heaven, God will take the time to do that for me, for you. We need to accept these realities into our own heart. My little nephew one time, as my sister-in-law was putting him to bed, he was just, I don't know, maybe five, five, four or five years old. And as she was tucking him into bed, he looked up at her and he's like, I'm your treasure. And she said, yes, you are my treasure. And you know what? We've adopted that saying in our marriage. So I'll tell Paul when you know, he's kissing me goodnight, I'll tell him, I'm your treasure. Let's do that to God because it's the truth. When we say sin will not, when the Bible says sin will not have dominion over you, that's the truth. If that doesn't sound true to you or to me, that's because we have accepted a lie in the place of truth. If it doesn't sound true to look at God and say, I'm your treasure, that's because we have accepted a lie instead of truth. So we need to counteract those lies by continually stating the truth to our own soul. Amen. Okay, so the third thing. The third thing, put God to the test. I was just reading again this morning the quote in Great Controversy that says, in the trial before us, we're talking about the, the, the events of Revelation 13 and all this 
uh, you know, being fulfilled in reality on this planet. That's not so far off from happening. It says, in the trial before us, we are going to have, need to have a faith that can withstand weariness, delay, hunger. A faith that will not faint, though severely tried. So this morning I was thinking, okay, do I have that faith? Do I have a faith that can withstand weariness and delay and hunger? A faith that will not faint, though severely tried. And you know what? We're going to need that very soon. And so the first thing we need to be doing is establishing that. So we need to be right now developing a rock-solid confidence in a God's beneficence towards us, his love for us, that he will do all things well, that even if we can't see his hand working, that he is, that he is watching over us with unwearied tenderness. We need to be developing that confidence, and we need to be developing the confidence that he stands behind his word. So we need to be developing the confidence that all the promises of God are yes and amen, not just for somebody else, but for me. They are yes and amen in my life. I need to be developing that confidence. So how do I do that? I'm going to give you a very simple, almost trivial example. But I think it's one of the most practical ones that I can give, okay? About how to just put God to the test, put his beneficence to the test, put his willingness to be involved in our lives to the test. Yes, we need to be claiming all of his promises and saying, okay, this promise that you have said needs to be fulfilled in my life. We need to be putting him to the test in that sense. But here's a very simple example, okay? Around the time, I think it was actually slightly before I got engaged, before we got engaged, I read this article called Beautiful Provision, and it was written by a, a young woman who had, um, had, had made the decision that she wanted to, she, was, she did not have a lot of money, but she really wanted to give to, to God more. And so she was looking at her life, you know, where did she spend her money, and how could she cut back on that so she could give more to the cause of God, and one of her conclusions was, is I want to spend less on my wardrobe and give that money to the cause of God. And so she prayed and she's like, Lord, I know that you're a king. I know that kings do not dress their children poorly. They do not dress their children in rags. So I am your child and I'm asking you to, to, to provide clothing for me. And I know that when you provide clothing for me, you will not provide shabby, you know, ill-fitting, you know, odd color combinations. God is not that kind of God. He loves beauty, all right? So she's like, I know that you're that kind of God. Would you provide clothing for me in a way that I can spend less of my money on my clothing and I can spend more of that on your cause? So she made that prayer. And then she proceeded throughout the article to tell incident after incident where God had provided high quality, beautiful, modest, wonderful clothing for her at, for nothing, for Pennies, literally pennies or, or nothing at all. Brand new clothing, brand new $80, $120 pair of shoes. I forget the exact details. This is some years ago that she had purchased for like a dollar, something like that. Brand new clothing. And I read that article and I felt so miffed because I was like, why have I not thought of this? Why has this not occurred to me? This is unfair that God is doing this for her and not for me. But I realized, hey, the reason why God's doing it for her and not for me is because... I haven't asked. I'm not depending on him. I'm not saying, Lord, would you provide this for me? No, I'm like, well, I need such and such, so let me go to the store and just buy it. That's my mindset, and that's why he's not providing for me in the same way he's providing for her. So I was like, okay, from now on, you're a king. You don't dress your kids in rags. Beautiful provision. Okay. So this is in my mind. Now, like a month or two after that, we got engaged. I forget exactly the timeline because it's a couple years ago. But we got engaged. And I was thinking now about my wedding, right? And I was thinking about my wedding dress. And I was looking for wedding dresses. And wedding dresses, as many people in here know, can be what? 
Expensive, very expensive. So I'm like, oh, but it's my wedding. You know, it only happens one time in my life. You know, all this reasoning. And I remember, beautiful provision. Can a king provide a wedding dress for his daughter? Can he provide a wedding dress for his daughter that doesn't need to spend you know, unnecessary money into you know, the pocket of this company because he wants to, he, it can go to some other cause? Now, incidentally, if somebody in here has purchased an expensive wedding dress, absolutely no condemnation. That's not why I'm telling the story, okay? What I'm just sharing is what God did in my heart and in my life to teach me about his beneficence towards me. So I began to pray, and he was like, would you, would you put that in my hand? Are you willing to put your wedding dress, which is you know, something that you, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, are you willing to put your wedding dress in my hand and allow me to have beautiful provision for you? And so I was like, okay, Lord, I am willing. Beautiful provision. What is the king going to provide for his daughter as a wedding dress? Can't get into all the details of the story, but I'm telling you, God provided me my dream wedding dress for $150. I loved that dress, and I still love that dress. And you know what? When I look at pictures of that wedding dress, it doesn't just remind me of you know, my wonderful wedding day with my husband. It reminds me of a father that cares about providing for his children, that has beneficent intentions and that cares about, hey, she wants a wedding dress for her wedding, and she doesn't want to spend very much money on it because she wants to give her money to something else. I'll provide that for her. I'll provide that for her in a way that she could never provide it for herself. God's willing to do these things for us, and so we need, to be, we need to be asking, hey, beautiful provision, can you provide my clothes? Hey, this, can you provide that? Not because I just want God to be my gumball machine, but because I want to put his beneficence, his love for me, his care for me, his provision for me to the test so that I develop that confidence so that when I am in a situation where I am facing weariness, delay, and hunger, my faith will not faint, though severely tried, because it is based on experience. Oh, nice. So developing faith in our lives, coming to the word of God and not just reading it and being like, oh, well, that's really interesting, or oh, that was a, that was a clever story, or you know, whatever that may be, but reading it and saying, okay, how can I now take this into my experience? How can I remind myself? How can I listen to the word of God more than I listen to the culture? How can I speak the realities of heaven to my own soul more than I hear the lies of the devil to my own soul? Uh -huh. And how can I put God to the test and understand the practicality of a relationship with God to, to bring forth real-life results uh -huh. in this generation? Jesus said, he that is willing to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. So the the uh, implication of that verse being, if you come to scripture even searching for an answer, but you're not willing to do whatever it is God might re require, quote, quote, um, chances are you're not going to find your answer. But if you come to scripture with a posture of, you are above, I am below, I am kneeling, you are giving, you are love, and I need. And whatever you ask is fine. You can have it. Suddenly, the word of God comes alive. Now, Amen. time fails us. To, um, to share the many other things, elements of uh, devotions we're excited about, I will just touch one more among the ones we have sitting here. And that is, um, make it a point when you get to the end of your uh, devotional time, your devotional hour, or your 30 minutes, or, or whatever it is, don't get up from your, from your knees or from your experience without tweeting to your own brain what it is you just read. By which I mean, 
And, and for most of us, this comes in the form of journaling. Uh, a journal is basically an ongoing letter to yourself, reminding yourself of the, you know, what was powerful in your experience today. I have found myself personally that when I, I, I mean, I have a super powerful session in scripture and literally get up from, and by breakfast time, it, that superpower has just melted into the superpower of yesterday and the day before that. And, the, and I have no idea actually what I read for, you know, for scripture this morning. Um, I'm not suggesting that you actually tweet it, although you could. Twitter could use a lot more of that than everything else that is out there. But I am suggesting that when you get to the end of your hour, that you don't leave that place until you have boiled down into one paragraph, into one sentence, into one phrase, the essence of the call of God to your heart that day. That's all I'm going to tell you about journaling. I mean, I can go on and on about journaling. We, journaling has been utterly massive in my experience. And even now, as I go back and read, you know, I mean, the stack of journals on my shelf is, is a, you know, they're volumes now. And as I go back, the faithfulness of God, you know, you read about the faithfulness of God to like the children of Israel in scripture, and that's powerful. If there's anything more powerful to that personally in my experience, not that my writing is more powerful than scripture, please understand me, but it's God's personal work, God's personal answer, my struggle, and then 60 pages later, there's an answer. And even sometimes when I wrote the answer, I wasn't remembering the struggle. But when I go back and read a journal from 10 years ago, and it only takes me five or six minutes to get from the struggle to the answer, suddenly you see it's the ultimate in getting the snapshot of the big picture mm-hmm. of your life and seeing the faithfulness of God. Ellen says we have nothing to fear for the future except we forget how God has led us in past history. Mm. Well then, <laughs> why, why do we forget? Oh, maybe we like repeating grades. I don't like repeating grades. I mean, God has already, God has already proven himself good and merciful and all-powerful mm. in our lives. Let's take advantage of that. Remember it. Bear witness of it in your own life, on paper, on, you know, if it's, if it's a journal, great. If it's a blog, great. If it's, you know, you name it. Um, I said one more. I'm going to give you two. I have found in my personal experience that it really helps me to have a, I study best when I am driving towards giving. So asking to give, basically, would be the title of that chapter in Christ's Object Lessons. Um, So basically, most of the time when I'm having devotions, I'm writing a sermon, or I'm writing a book, or I'm, you know, whether anyone ever hears that sermon is completely immaterial. Or anyone reads the book, completely immaterial. For me, it's my devotions right now. And this is what, I'm, this is what keeps my brain engaged. It's like my accountability to, to keep seeking, to keep searching, to, uh, you know, to, to keep alive in myself the enthusiasm for chasing the truth down whatever rabbit hole it might appear to be. So um, journaling, sermon writing, you name it. Basically, the, the point I'm trying to express is you need to take the knowledge from just here to either, you know, from here to here or from here to here, or the knowledge needs to be, it needs to morph from just this cloud of inspiration into something that's, gener- uh, that's genuinely deliverable. And once it does, that's the bit that sticks. Amen. You can remember, and your neighbors and your friends will also remember a powerful tweet or blog post, um, but you're not going to remember Unless you take the time right after, I find, unless I take the time right after my one hour or two hours, whatever it is, to actually boil it down into one summative statement, then, yeah, it was inspiring. But 
it was just inspiring, you know, it was great. And I, I, I you know, 24 hours from now, I won't have anything more hmm. to give you than that. All right, we have a number of questions. Um, we have a number of questions left over from yesterday, but first, we're gonna take a selfie. Get in the photo. Okay. One, two, three. You blinked. <laughs> Very good, okay. All right. Number one. Uh, you know what, let me deal with this one first because I'm, I'm not actually gonna give you an answer, I'm gonna give you a resource. Um, after our, my discussion yesterday about my brain just runs a million miles an hour, and so I asked God to remind me, a question came through, basically, legitimately, I have the same problem, and sometimes praying is not enough. What am I supposed to do when praying is not enough, when literally God just can't get through to remind type of thing? I'm not reading the exact question, but um, my answer for that would be, if, uh, if you've gotten to the point, as, as I have also, in, in my experience, gotten to the point where... Uh, literally, I just, I cannot get a grip. And I've prayed and asked God and, and whatever. Probably there's something else going on. Um, in our case, it could very well be, you know, like, again, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a screen addiction. Five years ago, some people were guessing that there might become a screen addiction. But nobody really knew. Society is changing so rapidly that we have now problems that are way ahead of solutions, that makes sense. And way ahead of definitions, even. So it's entirely possible for me to actually be, to have a genuine addiction to a phone, and that addiction to be reaching that level, of that compromise to be reaching into every other part of my life, and I don't realize it. And no one has observed the process long enough to think, okay, well, oh, you can't pray. Uh, do you have a smartphone? You know, we, we haven't put those two things together yet. <laughs> but this I will say, I've done, my, my field is counseling and addictions, and uh, I have discovered that compromising one area of life is cancer, and it, it, it reaches to every other area of life legitimately. If I don't fly out of bed in the morning when it's time to go, uh, you know, basically the, my first 15 seconds, my response to my alarm clock determines the trajectory of my day. If I'm sluggish responding to my alarm clock... I'll be sluggish for responding to everything, including the Holy Spirit, the rest of it. I just hardwired my brain to be like, oh, all day long. Well, it's like, oh, great. You know, because how many of us were like, yeah, when the alarm clock went off this morning? <laughs> um, so I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm going to give you a resource. The resource is this. I'm going to give you a web address. Um, again, if you're dealing with something beyond, we have a cyclical pattern of sin or, or some other you just can't seem to overcome and simply praying about it is not helping, here's the resource, www.formorethanthis.com. Uh, on that, that's our discipleship training portal. And on that, there's a free five-day um, discipleship like training class on overcoming, overcoming sin in general, overcoming addictions kind of in specific. Uh, basically, it's the jumpstart. It's, it's part theology and part neuroscience of how to overcome temptation um, and reset your brain to respond to the Holy Spirit as opposed to being sluggish, okay? www.formorethanthis.com for more than this uh, the idea, so it'll help you remember, the idea is we were born for more than this, more than this moment, more than this kind of bondage, more than this world. 
We were born for more than this, and it's God's idea. He wants to give that to us. So mm. check out www.formorethanthis.com, the free training. It takes five days to go through. It's five videos, but they're, you know, they're dripped out, so you'll, it'll take five days. Um, that would be the answer to that question, if praying mm-hmm. is not enough. All right. Let's do this one. Um, one of the questions was, where is a good place to start reading for a new Bible scholar and then... Um, Kind of a relate. Well, no. Let me just answer that one alone. So, one of the best places I think to start uh, with a new Bible scholar, and this is partially by the influence of Pastor Mark as well. Um, we always encourage people to a start with praying through Psalms, especially like Psalm one, Psalm thirty-two, Psalm thirty-four, Psalm forty. Start with those, and it's not how far you get through the Psalm; it's how much you pray about this verse. Okay, so if you get Four verses through the psalm, that's fine. Pick up tomorrow in the next, you know, on verse five. If you get all the way through, that's fine. You can go, you can extend yourself as long as you want. Additionally, I would encourage you to start perhaps in the Gospel of John or in the Gospel of Matthew and take the three questions that I was mentioning earlier about, you know, what's happening here? How would I feel if I was in this situation? How does this apply to my life? So start with those stories. Ask those three questions as you go through the stories through the, through the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew or Mark, really any of the Gospels, but ask those three questions as you go through the stories and then praying through the Psalms, so that would be a really great place to begin. Mm-hmm. Another short one, do I need privacy for devotions? Short answer would be no. Um, you don't need privacy to you know, be close to your family. You don't need privacy to be married. You don't need privacy. So you don't need privacy to have a, to have a dynamic uh, relationship with God either or to have dynamic communion with God. Longer answer would be, which will still be a short answer, um, that depending on your learning style, depending on what uh, really enlivens and enriches devotions for you, you may need privacy. So I already told you that reading out loud is almost a must for me, which means that my devotions at home are much better than my devotions at GYC in a hotel room when reading out loud would not work for all my mates. So, uh, you know, the answer is yes and no. You don't, it's, it's not a requirement. You don't need it. But yes, it does help sometimes if, you're, you know, if your style um, lends itself to that. Okay, um... Is it okay to use devotional books other than my Bible for my devotions? So the word of God is always the most powerful. So we, can, we want to have that as the foundation, okay? The word of God is where it's at. And every other devotional book that we read, we want that to be pointing us back to the Bible, pointing us back continually, pointing us back, pointing us back, so that ultimately our love for this book is what's being cultivated, um, now, when it comes to having other books, I, I do certainly read um, Spirit of Prophecy in my devotions, um, and not for the entirety of my devotions, like I will read some of that and then spend the rest of my time in the Word of God. Um, so other devotional books besides, if, if the question was other devotional books besides the Spirit of Prophecy, I would say certainly, you know, it's not inappropriate to read another devotional book. But be sure that the devotional book is, is cultivating your love and your appetite for the word of God as opposed to I'm reading this because it's more interesting, more relatable, more whatever than the Bible. So I get some inspiration out of this other book. I don't really gain my inspiration out of the Bible, so I'm reading this other book. That, then that's a problematic pattern. Mm-hmm. So any other book should always be pointing us back to and cultivating our love for the word of God. I would say the same thing applies to another question. What do you think about following study guides, i.e. Sabbath schools, quarterly, etc.? Sabbath school quarterly is dynamite, and it's what you make of it. Like, you can literally 
read the Sabbath School Quarterly and just it'll be fill in the blank and dun 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 and you're done and that was no inspiration. Or you can treat the Sabbath School Quarterly like a springboard, like a to you know a, a discussion starter that then drives you into deeper study of the Book of Romans, for example. Mm -hmm. So. Study guides can be what you make of them. I, again, wouldn't use the study guide to be my entire devotional experience because that's kind of, it's outlined for you. It's driven by somebody else. And what we're trying to, again, step back, the big picture, what are we trying to accomplish? Well, we're trying to accomplish intimacy between me and God. And that's probably the best way may not be to follow someone else's blueprint for intimacy because someone else's intimacy to God is not going to be the same as my intimacy with God. So I would say use it as a part of your study experience, um, but perhaps not dominate the whole. Or if it does dominate the whole, make sure that you are yourself, like you might do Sabbath school lesson, but then make sure you're doing plenty of extracurricular thinking and not just filling in the blanks and calling it done because your personal worship is over. Mm -hmm. Especially with the Sabbath school lesson, the beauty about that is it's something that the, a group is collectively studying. So when I study that, I am enriching not only my own mind on that topic, like it's been on the subject of Romans, but now when I go to the group, I can contribute to a collective study. So that's the beauty of the Sabbath School um, Guide, but then again, it should be balanced with what I, what I study for my own personal needs right now. Mm -hmm. uh, what techniques do you use for Bible marking? I think you're a better Bible marker than I am. I'll just <laughs> tell you, in, uh, in my Bible, uh, I am one of those that doesn't like a, a bunch of colors and chaos uh, and notes and, and whatever else. Um, however, I do very much value the idea of marking. So I have just my little system, and my little system is I use a fine pen, and if I like it, I underline it once. And if I double like it, I underline it twice. And if I triple like it, I underline it three times. Super technical, I know. And if it's a long passage and I don't like the mess all over my page, then I'll just put a line down the margin, or two lines down the margin, or three lines down the margin. Same thing for SLP books. So that's okay. not what she does. So, <laughs> that isn't what I do. And, but I would say the principle with Bible marking and what I was emphasizing Bible marking the other day is relate to the passage. You know, express your, your, your conclusion regarding the passage as you're going back and forth. You know, read it, think about it, and then relate with it. And that's why marking is so important. Now, again, as I was saying the other day, my method of marking and my husband's is quite different. He, my husband, is, is a perfectionist and a little bit of a neat freak. So his Bible looks immaculate at all times. Now, he does mark. He only uses two colors. He uses yellow. And then if there's something really important, he'll maybe use a, a very fine-tipped little red pen. And it looks perfect at all times. His Bible does. Mine is not quite so neat, but that's because that's part of my personality coming through. So I express in my, in my Bible the same in a way that I can then come back to that passage even three years later, and understand at least the framework of how I was interacting with it three years ago. So I do it by a color-coded system. The colors don't you know, make that much difference, just so it makes sense to you. So I have a color, uh, you know, color system that makes sense to me. And by the colors that I use in different areas of the passage, when I come back to that a year later, I can at least understand the framework of how I was interacting with it a year ago and then can then build upon that same framework and express even more regarding the passage. And just do whatever makes the word make sense to you. So when I'm, as I'm studying through Titus right now, when I was talking the other day about the key words sober and, and uh, sound, I went through and I boxed all those on the page, sober, sound, sober, sound, sober, sound, sober, sound, with a little blue... Uh, blue color, because in my marking system, blue is like, this needs to be in my personal life. Because the answer was, in Titus, it's expressing that sobriety and soundness are the answers to spiritual immaturity. 
So when I'm coming to this, now when I flip to it a couple years later, I see sober and sound boxed in blue, and I say, hey, these are the things that I know need to be inculcated into my life. I know that because of the color, and it stands out to me from the page because they're all boxed. So I understand, and I can do a quick recheck. Hey, how much have these things? I remember what I studied about sobriety and soundness, you know, however, however long ago. Are those growing in my life? Have they been inculcated? Am I growing and maturing spiritually? So if you like colors, I think they're awesome. So grab some colors and go with your Bible. Have a marking system that makes sense to you that you can connect with. If you are very, you know, neat and everything has to look perfect and you don't like the Bible page having much on it, you can do it more my husband's method or Sean's method, something that is very simple and straightforward, but at least gives you an interaction and an ability to continue to build on the framework of what you studied in the past. All right, last question. I can't believe we made it. How can one productively converse with or discuss a passage with someone who has a different interpretation of it? This is not a two-minute answer, but I'll give you... uh, two-minute answer, which will hopefully be a springboard into, into future answers. The bad news is that everyone comes to Scripture. I say bad news. It's not all bad. But everyone comes to Scripture with glasses on, you know, with a, a, a particular bias, which is colored. It's partly a combination of worldview, family culture, just everything. Um, the good news is the closer we get to Jesus, the less, the more of those biases we shed. So it is a difficult thing, and I would say actually in many ways an unproductive thing to go head-to-head with someone on a, uh, you know, on a passage of Scripture that you interpret this way and they interpret this way. The Pharisees were really good at that. Pharisees and Sadducees were at each other's necks constantly and obviously to no productive end. So what should our focus be? I mean, what we're doing if we engage in that kind of discussion is, is building a spirit of contention, which is not the spirit of Christ. The alternative is... Um, I say the alternative. The alternative is to let those things be, especially if the person that you're dealing with is, for example, completely convinced on some wind of doctrine that they also get from Scripture. And if you ask them about it, they're going to rattle you off a bunch of proof texts, but you also have your same proof, the same proof text, and they're going to show you Ellen White quotes, and you also have the same Ellen White quotes, and you're obviously... Then at that point, really, the discussion is going to get nowhere, and the fruit will probably be mostly bad. So... There are, uh, for that reason, there are discussions or or certain people with whom I I simply won't have a theological discussion in which I know I'm going to disagree with them because if you're not coming with an open mind to change, if if either person is not coming with an open mind to change but rather coming to convince the other, you're not going to have a productive discussion. The good news is that with more Bible study comes more maturity. And with more maturity comes not just... uh, less risk for reacting to someone else's, like Natasha was suggesting yesterday, just kind of an upset, well, why? how can you even think that for crying out loud? Less reactiveness and more, um, I don't even want to say more convincingness, except the fruit of your life, the more, the more your life is infused with the word of God, the fruit of your life will line up with the word in such a way that will give you not just your words, but your life, a convincing power and testimony. And basically, that is your weapon to use against, that is the best weapon we have to use against error. It is the influence, the unconscious, unconscious influence of a godly life. It will do more by far than all the theological arguments and proof texting we could come up with. So long and short of that answer would be, how do you productively converse a uh, discussion with a passage, you know, passage with someone with different interpretation? Answer number one, you sometimes don't. 
Answer number two, go back to your Bible yourself. Fall on your face yourself. Ask God to shed you of more preconceptions yourself. And as you do that, your life will become less abrasive, more convicting at the same time, and your, uh, your life will be an influence powerful good. Just last thought on this is it's always important when we're talking about the, the fence post principle. And when working with other people, it's always important to start, or when talking to other people, to start at how do we understand the Bible? How do we study the Bible? How do we, how do we see the whole picture? How does it, when we do Bible studies with people, that's always the first study. We never study anything else until we've studied how do we understand the Bible and go through a, a study on how the Bible explains we should understand the Bible. If we have different hermeneutics, we will never land on the same page because you're interpreting it one way, same passage, and I'm interpreting it another. So we have to always back up. If I'm having a disagreement with you on, hey, this passage, and you think this way, and I think it that, it's that way, we need to back up and say, hey, how do I understand the Word of God? How do we approach the scripture? Is it our buddy? Is it, you know, something that we can critique down here? Or is it over us, etc.? All right. That concludes our seminar this morning. I have one more question for you, though. Um, I mentioned our, our discipleship <clears throat> training portal for morethanthis.com. Part of the reason why we have uh, started that, which is in very infant stages, there's just that one course on there right now uh, that I talked about, the overcoming sin. Part of the reason why we've done that is because we want a, a way to have more direct you know, access to people like you uh, on the same journey as us, with the same questions as us, with the same interests as us. So just by a show of hands, uh, this is kind of a survey for our own input, uh, our own edification. By a show of hands, uh, how many of you in this room would be interested in a, um, in, a, in a discipleship course that's a little bit more, it's online, so it's, you know, uh, paste at your schedule, but a little bit more hands-on. Here, you can look over my shoulder. This is how to actually break down, like the little thing we did with, uh, uh, with Timothy, you know, one, two, three. Show of hands, level of interest. Okay, good, wonderful. So check, check out that portal. In fact, if you go to formorethanthis.com, um, there's an opt-in page where you can just leave your email address, and we won't spam your email because I hate getting spam email, and I'm the one who writes the emails. So... I promise you I won't spam your email. But what we will do is you can give us feedback there. This is what my interest is. Since it's brand new, you can be the pilot group and tell us what's, and your answers will be given higher priority. And then when we do release um, new uh, free resources, you'll be the first to know. All right. Bow your heads with us and we'll pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, just a, a wonderful, rich time together. We, uh, we know your presence has been here, and we just ask that the Spirit would continue to push the conviction deeper into our souls. Bless us now as we go from this place to be trained, to hit the streets, to share your love with others. May this be the fruit on the tree that's born uh, from hearts that have sought you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.